Okay, so this is uh, JHR Threads. We're gonna talk about um, an article uh, that was written by two friends, Jeremy West and Jonathan Meir, uh, several years ago in the Journal of Human Resources about uh, a topic that is uh, very, very old, uh, going back to the, apparently back to the 1300s is the, the minimum wage. So uh, Jeremy and Jonathan, can you tell me just a little bit about, tell the listeners who you are and uh, how, uh, yeah, just tell us who you are and where, where you are. Uh, Jeremy, you wanna go first? Sure, so I'm Jeremy West. I'm currently an assistant professor in economics at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And uh, I did my PhD at Texas A&M, and John was actually one of my committee members. And we co-authored this paper um, starting when I was uh, doing my PhD work. And I studied public economics and applied microeconomics with kind of a little tiny flavor of that, uh, as we'll discuss today, uh, dealing with kind of the causal inference or questions of causality. Awesome. Good to see you. I am the, uh, I'm Jonathan Mayer. I'm the Mary Julia and George R. Jordan Professor of Public Policy at Texas A&M. Uh, my claim to fame is having been on Jeremy's committee many, many years ago. Uh, like Jeremy, I mostly work on other topics. I mostly work on questions about charitable giving education. Um, I have some minimum wage papers that I've written since this one, but this was uh, my first foray into the minimum wage literature. Was it your first, Jeremy, into the minimum wage literature? Have you written more on it? Uh, this is my first and only paper. I've first and only paper. Yeah. He learned. He, he learned his lesson about getting involved in this. <laughs> I, which I, sh I should clarify. I, I'm not opposed to working on that. My research has, has been going in different directions, but I'm not opposed yeah. to working on minimum wage questions in the future. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you know, the, the, there's a couple of things I want to talk about with the paper's substance before we get into it. Though I was just was curious how this project began, you know, a lot of the people that listen to this, they don't have a clue what economists do. And they definitely don't have a clue what involved, how research can be creative and sort of, you know, where these ideas come from. So I was just kind of curious, where did the project come from? And, you know, what about it, you know, sort of was attracted you to it? So it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a funny random story. And when I used to present the paper, I used to, I used to tell the story because again, I was, you know, had a couple dozen charitable giving papers under my belt, nothing in this in this area. Um, so this was around the time that the Affordable Care Act was uh, was in the news. So that gives you a sense of how long it takes to go from idea to publication, between solid five or six years. Um, and I had gotten really interested in all of the various mandates that um, were going to, you know, that the coverage had to include certain things. So you it had to cover mental health, it had to cover drug rehab, it had to cover all these all these things. And I said, you know, surely this adds to the cost of labor and surely this gets passed on. This was sort of my naivete. I just didn't know this literature. And so um Jeremy, you, you were second year? Were you second or third year at that point? It was actually my first year. I Your first started year. working as an RA for you on that project. Okay. So it was it was really uh fresh behind the ears. And so I said, hey, let's let's check out what uh, impact these mandates might have on um, on employment using you know state differentiation, uh, and that might be interesting with this big ACA debate. And so, um, in between the time that you know the the, the three or four months that uh, Jeremy kind of got the, these data set, this new data set that he found, the business dynamics statistics, which itself was not new, but the underlying data were not new, but the um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jeremy, but the uh, public use version was newly available going back to the 1970s. Is that right, Jeremy? Do I have, do I have that? I, I think vague, something along those lines, or at least it had not been used very extensively. Yeah, we had no one, no one had really used it before. And so Jeremy, Jeremy's running these things. And we, we so to, to, to close that part of the story, um, we sort of found the same thing that everyone else in this literature found. I kind of got myself ahead of myself in my excitement. And it's just kind of noisy. And that was sort of where the literature had been on this. That wasn't super interesting. But Jeremy comes into my office and he says, you know, I've been running these regressions. And I just, I threw the minimum wage in there as a control variable because it seemed kind of important. And it's always negative and statistically significant, no matter what specification I run. And I always thought, you know, Cardin Kruger, you know, had disproven that demand curve sloped down. And I said, huh, I don't really know anything about this either. And so we go down this rabbit hole. And in the, the, couple of years that followed while we were working on this, 
the minimum wage kind of burbled back up as, as a hot topic, sort of in, in about 2013, 2012, 2013, right around the time that we were finishing the first draft of this paper. So the advice that I always give or that I always gave when I presented this paper was, was for, for junior faculty and for graduate students was twofold. First, pay attention to your covariates because you never know where inspiration is going to strike. And second, get yourself a time machine and figure out what the hot topic is going to be like three years from now and then start working on that because then you are you are right at that leading edge. Exactly, because it takes five years to publish, so you're doing it right on time. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, hold on, I got to write that down. So um, that's great. So uh, what about, let's see. Okay, so then the second question you know, so presumably Jeremy's putting in the minimum wage, like you said, as a control, but I'm assuming Jeremy, you weren't putting in growth rates, were you? You were putting in like minimum wage levels or something? Right. So we were just looking at the minimum wage as a, a standard, you know, covariate and levels thrown into the panel fixed effects regression where we were yeah. primarily focused on these health insurance mandates. Right. That project ended up as John kind of alluded to not, not really turning into much of, uh, of interest or, or novelty and results. And so then we shifted our attention towards more formally looking at the minimum wage as a treatment itself um, within mm -hmm. these data that we were working with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what about, but the paper's not really about the minimum wage. It's about the growth, the effect of the minimum wage on, on right, right. I said the growth rate of minimum wage. You're, but what brought you to start thinking about the minimum wage and its effect on growth rates of employment as opposed to just levels? I'm assuming that that was the traditional question was just on these levels. Is that right? But you sort of had this insight and it seems like it's driven by theory that it, that that may not be the right thing to look at. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So just, just to be clear, right. So um, we're, we're fully upfront with, uh, with the audience here, levels and growth rates are kind of mechanically connected. It's ultimately a number of people employed and you're just talking about different statistical ways you can, track that in data. Um, so the reason we actually started looking at growth rates is because it happened to be a variable in this business dynamic statistics data. And we were thinking um, job creation is something that has not kind of as directly been focused on compared to just the number of people employed. And so being able to actually look at um, kind of gross margins of hiring or layoffs as, uh, or separations from jobs as opposed to just the number of people clocking in at the, at the office is, um, is something where we could provide some uh, novel contribution to, to studying employment uh, or employment policies like the minimum wage. And so that's what motivated us actually is, you know, this was another variable in the, in the original data. And so we started using that as an outcome we're finding that was actually um, showing really sizable effects even compared to just the uh, net employment effects, which would be the employment level that had traditionally been examined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then as we, as we, did dive into the literature, you know, we may have been putting the cart before the horse a little bit in terms yeah. of, of the inspiration struck from what was what was available. But then as we started going into the literature, it kind of made less and less sense to approach it the way that it had been approached. And, you know, cards on the table, the minimum wage literature, is, as I mean, you weren't exaggerating 13th century. I mean, I've, I've got into this, the, the history of it um, quite a bit since then, the economics history of, of the minimum wage. And um, at this point, I'm not surprised when I find something from like literally 1915 and uh, it's, it's a triple difference. And, you know, they didn't know it was called a triple difference, but, you know, nothing, nothing we do is new. No argument we have is new. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I've written some stuff on non-wage compensation margins and then I dig something up from 1960 and it's talking about, you know, uh, worker effort and um, scheduling flexibility and stuff like that, stuff that people are now writing really great papers with administrative data. But um, right. the upshot is we, we started diving into it and, you know, we... There's this knock on on you know principles of micro that it's 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 not realistic and it's this straw you know we're teaching them the straw man and 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 I teach a giant online principles of micro class and I, I reject this um, pretty emphatically because the problem with economic knowledge in the world is not that people are out there not understanding that there's more sophistication beyond supply and demand and marginal benefit and marginal cost is that they have no clue what marginal benefit and marginal cost are so let's start by giving them the building blocks and in a well taught class like mine. You make it very clear, here are the very restrictive assumptions that you need to do it. Most of what economists do is talk about what happens when we relax these assumptions. Yeah. But for the same reason that a physics class starts with a frictionless surface 
in a vacuum, we start with this basic building block. That said, it's not necessarily a uh, reasonable way of thinking that, that the world works with this like snap to a new equilibrium. You know, we got the supply and demand, you draw the, the price floor there, and then all of a sudden you got this surplus that we call that we call unemployment. And so we started diving into it and we reached in other literature, some management literature, this idea of firing aversion, how bad firing is uh, for, for morale. Um, and again, I, we, 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 I don't think we're, we're breaking any dramatically new ground, but we were synthesizing it in a way that had been touched on obliquely in some of the literature in economics, but, but not a ton. Yeah. And then we had these better data and that's when we started, and when I say we, you should think Jeremy, uh, started getting our Jeremy's hands dirty with figuring out exactly what the right approach was. Because this was a time when the argument really was whether, which, which set of variables, of control variables you needed to stuff into a two-way fixed effects model to claim that the remaining variation was as good as random. And that was this kind of back and forth that was going on in the early 2010s about what I would, what I was jokingly called the hunt for the right counterfactual. And it's a lot of talking past each other. It's a lot of stuff about how many uh, region by time fixed effects can you put in before you've washed out all the variation? Can you put in state time trends, which was sort of our thorn in the side, which I'm sure we're going to get to in a moment. Yeah. Um, and that's where, that's how we kind of got to this idea of like, it seems pretty sensible for a lot of reasons that the effect is not going to be this discrete jump in levels that a diff and diff or two-way fixed effects model uh, should, you know, is good at picking up. And if that's not the way the world works, how should we be thinking about this particular problem? And what's the best way to measure it out? Right, right. So, yeah, the, 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 it's almost, your paper almost feels like it's caught out of time with all this two-way fixed effects, uh, careful thinking in it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't usually associate such thoughtfulness uh, happening kind of like thinking really carefully about, you know, what exactly is the implications of this dagger design at that time? You know, uh, I think about it in the last couple of years. So something, something about this project seemed to make you see things that others weren't really seeing, like the problems with the unit specific trends and just how to think about this staggered rollout. I was just curious what, what exactly back, cause you know, Andrew Goodman Bacon and others really do reference this paper as being sort of an important early paper for thinking about two-way fixed effects and differential timing. And I was just curious what y'all's mindset was about that back then. If you hear a lot of noises, I got these kittens and they, they're freaking out right now. <laughs> you, you must produce, if you have kittens, you must produce them. That's, that's the zoom that's that's zoom law i don't i don't make the law i just enforce it right right oh i'll get yeah. them in a minute they're about to crawl on me and jump up here um, yes I, I can take this one scott uh here. start i hear um so so john and i are, are not econometricians we're the uh our econometric skills are more of the proof by simulation as opposed to a formally derive and then um you know uh theorize an econometric model and, and do more formal mathematical proofs. And so uh, you're right that, you know, there have been many researchers over the last five plus years that have really um, taken great steps towards pushing progress and formalizing causal inference with these panel fixed effects models where you have treatment happening at different times, different places, and we want to kind of pick up some average metric there that tells us something that connects to our economic theories or other theories. Right. And so um, with the unit specific trends and uh, kind of our view of, uh, of kind of picking up that phenomenon here with this paper, it was really just a matter of uh, looking at the data. So I've, mm -hmm. I've been taught and one of my uh, preferences when doing research is, you know, you make tens of thousands of graphs, look at the data in every way possible, understand what the real patterns are that are actually there in the mm -hmm. data. And we started noticing that 
um, consistent with kind of ideas of how a minimum wage might actually affect a workplace with these uh, theories John mentioned that had been for management literature as a firing aversion or other reasons why you might expect uh, kind of hiring margins to um, show effects more quickly than layoffs or disemployment margins of uh, already employed people when you have uh, an added cost to, to hiring people or having people employed. Consistent with those types of theories, we were finding that the effects seem to not be very discrete. It wasn't like the minimum wage went up and then the workforce shrunk overnight. It was the minimum wage went up and then maybe three years later, you have a pretty significantly smaller uh, labor force than you would have uh, compared to counterfactual. Right. And so then we started formalizing this and I, I say formalized in kind of the loose, uh, loose sense here by doing simulations where we were actually making up data and simulating um, simulating policy shocks and, and looking at different patterns of, you know, I probably ran uh, dozens of different uh, coded simulations here of different types. We were really just trying to explore this um, uh, type of treatment effect pattern, which uh, I think happens a lot of the time when we, we think about policy shocks, where it's not a, a really discrete, dramatic, you know, overnight or one observation to the next of the same place drop or increase in, in the outcome, but something that actually propagates or occurs over time. Yeah, right, right. Right. So, I mean, I, the, the, the thing that bugged us was that, and, and, and again, it wasn't, I don't remember when we discovered um, Wolfers's divorce paper, which had sort of touched on this. I, th I think we just sort of discovered it as we were figuring out what, what the issues were. But, but this idea that if the treatment is not this discrete thing mm. and you include a unit-specific time trend, you're literally picking up some of the... Uh, some of the treatment effect. Right. And um, when, when we, we segue in a bit into the stagger treatment effect, particularly in the case of something where there are, where there is no consistent control group, everyone's getting treated, people are getting treated multiple times, different sizes, so on and so forth. There is no standard, you know, pre-period. It's very difficult to graph this sort of thing, you know, and, and stack it up like an event study, especially, you know, if you have annualized or even quarterly data to really look at it, which, which is something that we, we added later. We added some quarterly data as well to take a, a crack at it with a different, uh, uh, with a different data, different data sets, I should say, both the QWI and the QCW. But to Jeremy's point, we, you know, we said, okay, well, let's, let's suppose that this is the way the world works. Uh, and I think this, this sort of simulated data thing is, is really underused by a lot of empirical folks. Like, make sure it works uh, to, to using, using the thing that you're doing. And so I said, okay, well, what if the world works the way we're, we're hypothesizing it does, which is that there's a slowdown in, um, in job growth? What happens when you introduce that with some data that's drawn from, random, you know, randomly created from a distribution of the real data? And then we impose the treatment effect. So what happens when you run these standard models in the literature? And the answer is an unholy mess. And you can't really pick out anything remotely resembling what you're looking for. Uh, God help you if you put state-specific time trends in there because it washes everything out. And so we tackled this with like five different specifications. And um, we did it both, you know, graphically with very simple like toy model and just said look here's what the residuals look like when you know you set up this and then you know you've seen these you've seen these figures and i'm sure you're going to highlight them and uh from, from the jhr version and the nvr version um and then we ran it with simulated data and we we, we said like look the the pattern of results when you run these specifications on the real data with these five different specifications with and without state specific time trends looks a whole heck of a lot like our hypothesized version of the world. That does not mean that that is the way the world actually works, but boy, is it a hell of a coincidence that the real world looks very similar to this simulation of a slowdown that gets washed out of a, by a state-specific time trend. And that's a consistent finding in the literature that when you introduce these time trends, the results just go away because you've soaked up all the variation. Yeah. Wait, so you're saying in the simulations, you, what were you coding up? What were you hardwiring in the simulations that kind of uh, manifested the particular kind of, you know, slowdown? What were you building in the model in the first place? 
So, so we're actually comparing different types of simulated treatments. So you could have a, a, a treatment effects. So you could simulate that um, there's a policy shock at time t equals zero that has an effect at time t equals zero, and then that's a permanent discrete drop. So that's kind of your, um, you know, first time you ever encounter a difference in differences model, you see, you know, one of those lines continues the, the same trend and the other one has this drop right at the time of the treatment. And then we were also simulating other types of treatment effects that would have um, either some discrete component or no discrete component, but then have a gradual um, kind of uh, uh, more dynamic uh, pattern to the treatment effect that yeah. uh, kind of kicked in over time, either kind of forevermore or that faded out after a certain period of time. So you can think about like some exponential curve that's going to have some uh, treatment effect that increases and then eventually slows down and kind of fizzles out. And we were showing that having these state specific, or, or in this case, it's simulated yeah, unit specific time trends was actually um, having no, um, no bearing on the interpretation of the inference you would get out of a discrete treatment effect, but was greatly attenuating the estimated treatment effect yeah. if the treatment effect was actually simulated to be this more dynamic pattern right. as opposed to something that was just a sharp drop or a sharp um, jump. So is it right to think, tell me if critique this comment, um, uh, okay. Is it as simple as saying that the attenuation is significant? Oh wait. Is it as simple as me saying, well, putting in unit specific trends is problematic if the trend is simply collinear with the treatment effect? Or is there something I'm missing? Is, is, it, is it just like you're saying the treatment effect is itself, a, is itself sort of leading to a trend? And so, you know, when you control for the state specific trends, you've just controlled for the treatment almost. Is it that or is there more to it than that? Or is that completely wrong? I mean that that sounds to me like a like a reasonable, not unreasonable simplification of 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 the issue. Um, and again, as Jeremy alluded to, you know, if you're thinking of this as as a shift to a new steady state, that you know, if you dig back in your uh, macro, that I think we've all filed away in our PTSD yeah. uh, locker. Um, but you know, if you think about those curves that we used to see, where you know the 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 economy moves to when you know trends towards a new steady state, if you think about it like that. And then you throw a state-specific oh. time trend in there, a unit-specific time trend in there. You're you're averaging out part of it. And and one of the I think brilliant things that Jeremy did was just show the residuals, like show the residuals yeah, with and without state-specific time trends, and show how they wash out. But right. more but more to the point, it, it it's it's not just that because even if you're just doing diff and dip, even if you're just doing standard diff and dip, you got average of the you know the difference in the pre-period, average of the difference in the post-period. But what what do you want? Like and and this is this is not this is not a um, this is not a rhetorical question because you might want the short run effect or you might want the long run effect and if the effect takes three years to phase in but you've got five years of data then you're averaging in two years of partial effect and then you know three more years of of the full effect and that's again something that, that Jeremy showed in these graphs where you just had your you know, a dashed line for what's the average difference in the post period and showing that the average difference in the post period was itself attenuated relative to the fully phased in effect. And so that was kind of kind of an issue that was there as well. And if you'll permit me to segue into, I think the, the thing that, that, that led you down the path towards, towards this paper originally, which is the staggered um, treatment timing and, and some of the issues with treatment timing. So again, one of the neat things that Jeremy did was he just created these two toy simulations with like five periods or eight periods or something like that. And he showed, you know, well, what happens when you've got your standard, you know, the sort of thing you would see in an introductory econometrics textbook um, or perhaps a brilliant mixtape, um, you know, what would you see when you see like a discrete change? And then, you know, we've got what happens if you run your standard diff and diff regression on this? What happens if you run sort of our job growth rate regression yeah, on it right. that, we, that we had proposed, that more dynamic uh, regression? Um, and then he put one together where there's a pre-period and then there's a period where one state is treated and the other one isn't. And during that period, there's a slowdown. And then in, at, at time two, um, the second state or unit is also treated and it, its slope also changes, right? And so now this is hypothesizing a permanent change in the growth rate and it's, it's, it's a toy model for a reason. But yeah. the cool thing that Jeremy did with this was he made it so that the average difference of the pre-period 
where both were untreated and the post-post period where both were treated averaged out to be the same as the, the size of the period where one was treated and one was not. And because of the way this model is structured, if you ran the levels regression on this, you would get a zero, right? Mm. And so now it's cheating, but I think it's very illustrative cheating because yeah. I would, when I would present this paper, when I still present it to graduate students um, to sort of talk about the craft of research, I say, look, do you believe your eyes when I tell you that something is clearly happening here? And they all say, yes, something is clearly happening. And I'm like, okay, here's what happens when you run your standard, you know, uh, treated times post, you know, time, you know, uh, period one, period two, whatever thing in there. And it's, it's a zero. And Jeremy said, well, you know, I had to like fudge this, right? Like I had to, I had to make sure that the time periods were the right length and, and that it averaged mm -hmm. out the right way. And then he said, you know, interesting. Doesn't that, doesn't that mean that this is really sensitive to the length of the pre-period and the post-period? And that's what led him down the rabbit hole of, well, what happens when you're not using all of the time periods? And, and I can't remember what, I think it's in the JHR version, um, is his version where he just shows, look, here's like four or five different empirical specifications yeah. with three states in it, right? One's permanently untreated, one is treated at one time period, one's treated at another time period. And choose your time periods, choose your specifications. You can get almost any answer you want out of this. Mm. And that is, I think, that the leap that he sort of took from tackling the state-specific time trend issue into the more staggered, the staggered treatment issue. Oh, that's interesting. So you were sort of coming upon these issues with staggering as a result of as a result of working on the unit specific trends and that's and it's in these simulations where you knew there were treatment effects that you start piecing together things like panel length and where you are in the panel wow that's really that's crazy jeremy um, did i was that was that a sufficiently yeah, yeah. heroic heroic uh, rendition of, well, of thanks for the flattery uh, i think the characterization is right i mean i think there are there are somewhat distinct issues between having a treatment effect pattern that's dynamic and then having units that are treated at different points in time. Yeah. And they're, they're obviously related. Um, so it's yeah. their specification is going to be picking up variation that might happen to both of those channels, but um, they're, they're definitely both issues that can, as John pointed out, depending on the nature of the sample that you use and the specification you run, you can get mm. a lot of different conclusions out of the same data. Yeah. 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 I mean the bacon, the bacon decomp, you know, the bacon decomposition, I know we all know it, but like, uh, it's so perfectly illustrated in this application because if there is these dynamic treatment effects, which there would be with by focusing on growth and the mechanisms that you're describing, even apart from the unit specific trends, you'll just get attenuation bias just from the fact that you've got that negative delta average treatment on the treated term and it just pushes it down. So it's imagine it's like panel fixed effects with this dynamic with this dynamic treatment effect is already pushing it down. And then when you put in the unit specific trends, it's like, like you show the residuals are just flat. That's crazy. I mean, so did you think when you were working on this, that that would, that was kind of independently sort of apart from the minimum wage project, you, you could sense that this was a more general thing or was it so bound up in the project? you know, that each of those elements was just seen as kind of a piece of the paper, but not a more general phenomenon. Uh, so from my perspective, we definitely discussed that, um, whether we wanted to even repitch the whole project as being more of an econometrics contribution with an application towards the minimum wage versus a minimum wage topical focus that had this econometric component. Yeah. And I think we made the right choice realizing that neither of us are econometricians. And like yeah. I said, we do proof by simulation, not uh, formalized econometric math. And so uh, we decided to emphasize the policy aspect as opposed to the econometrics and then just make that a kind of a secondary contribution. But um, I, it's definitely been great seeing all the work like you alluded to that's been done over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it's a very prescient paper. I mean, it's- Yeah, it's, I mean, I was just gonna say, I, I I remember several conversations with Jeremy Sinner being like, I really wish we were better at econometrics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we were both like very glad that, you know, people like like Andrew Goodman Bacon, um, Pedro Santayana, uh, Brantley Calloway, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of the people who are working in this space. Um, have actually, you know, taken this and formalized it because that's just, it's just not our comparative advantage, you know, um, 
and and it's it's cool to kind of have have been a part of that. And um, you know, I don't know that we need to trash everything that's happened in the last thirty years, but uh, but boy, it does it does make you rethink a lot of a lot of the stuff that's gone on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm just looking up the exact year. I didn't write it down. What it was the year that? What, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, I got this stupid, remarkable two pen and like. Uh, See, oh man, tell me the, tell me the, tell me how soon this was 2016 or 2013. So I think it, I think it, well, I think it appeared the, it, it first saw the light of day in like what 2013, Jeremy, like as, as like an NBER paper. Um, and, and I think that, that it was accepted at JHR in 2015. And then it was, it was sort of, exp, I think it appeared in 2016, yeah, but it was, it was like, ex, it was expedited for publication in large part because the minimum wage was such a big policy topic in 2016. So I think we did jump the queue ahead of, ahead of a number of people as, as uh, uh, you know, um, well, I think it makes sense, but at least it was, it worked out well for us. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's great. You know, I get the, the report from Google scholar about, you know, who's citing your paper and sometimes it's the most random stuff, right? Sure. Just the absolute most random, nothing to do with minimum wage at all. And you're like, this is cool that people are taking this and thinking about, about, um, you know, just how to be more thoughtful yeah. about what yeah. you're really measuring. And kind of uh, one thing paper, that I, I want to take, I just want to say one thing, the, the, the paper has uh, two strengths that I think is not common in a lot of applied papers, which is the writing is extraordinary. And this is a paper that I would recommend to many young people in their career, just to study what, you know, really is kind of classically very good rhetoric around a scientific genre like this. And then um, just the carefulness about discussing each result. It's just so common in an applied paper to just have like, you know, a sea of columns and be like, yes, yeah, it's like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, 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 that kind of thing. And, and that's really missing in this paper. This paper is like, very, very much every choice was given a lot of care and thought. And I just was curious, like, you know, um, is that just sort of, a, does that come naturally to both of you? Or did, did you feel like that this really was a paper that you took that kind of rhetorical care with? I think we had to. I think we had to because the minimum wage is a holy war and we got a lot of criticism. And that's that's good. That's yeah. a good, that's science, right? I'm not saying, oh, no, just, I, I would love it if everyone just accepted my work as if it was, you know, handed down on stone tablets, uh, you know, perfection itself the first time at least, but that's, that's not good science. And so it's, um, it's good that we got pushed on this a lot. It's good that we got tough questions and referee reports where people real like people ran their own regressions which is not something i have really seen no one does that with my charitable giving stuff uh you know run you know download their own data and and, and run it on that but that is frankly that's better science right some of the some of the rhetoric around it you know i i, I could live without but um but that's okay uh i'm i'm a big boy and i can take it but i do think that there was a lot of value and i think that there would be value i know jake victor tried to set up or did set up the the thing where there was going to be sort of more open discussion about papers there are fields certainly fields that move faster than economics don't have time for one person to sit on a paper for six months to write their referee report and so it's sort of open you know open discussion of it yeah. and i think it's less fun for the authors to kind of get it from all sides but this paper the first version of this paper was much, much, much weaker than this version. And we got knocked around a lot. Mm. But what you see here is the product of getting knocked around and getting feedback and some hurt feelings and Jeremy getting really angry and turning really red and, and wanting to write angry letters to editors and you know me being right there with him. But <laughs> at least it's, it's always dangerous when I'm the cooler head, yeah. but... Uh, but I do, I do remember my favorite line, which I still pull out of like, you know, eight years later of Jeremy's, which I think is, is, is one of the funniest things I've ever heard someone say in an academic context, which is one referee asked us to reconcile our results with the previous literature. And Jeremy's response, no hesitation was, 
I don't know how to reconcile the right results with the wrong ones. <laughs> Done. The others were not very good. Uh, yeah. So what are the skills, um, you know, for a young person thinking about, you know, working in a topic, if this, I mean, so you sort of alluded that this is a, uh, an unusually uh, hard area to work in uh, because of the, the refereeing process is unusually uh, difficult and you could elaborate on that. But what exactly are the attributes that you and Jeremy had that made you successful at working in it um, that, you know, would, would, that you could feel like is a general skill set that's learnable for a young person or that they, that they should be trying to have those skills? What is it, what is it that you guys had because you made it through the gauntlet? I don't know, Jeremy, what do you think? What is, what is our special sauce other than a deep I mean, and abiding love for each other? Perseverance, uh, a thick skin, like as John was alluding to, that's going to be pretty important if you're getting knocked around a lot. Um, it, you know, it is a bit of a trial by fire with most papers, but especially one that's in a, an area. And I think like, part of the uh, um, intensity of the refereeing process is because this is a literature where there are a lot of mixed results and people have... Mm -hmm. um, for better or worse, a stake in the game and that they may have had multiple papers that are showing a particular pattern of findings. And if this is counter to those findings and they have a vested interest just inherently in trying to uh, be more uh, intense in their critiques. But I think uh, on a more positive note, the types of skills that you need is just like a determination to first be certain that the results, I mean, science is science. You can't, you can never be a hundred percent sure, but we were very, very careful throughout the process. We posted all of our data and coded every step possible. We, in order to do that, that, that takes some confidence and some double checking and some effort to make sure that, you know, mm -hmm. things are, you know, it doesn't mean the results are hundred percent correct, but it means at least that the code is a hundred, you know, as air-free as we could make it. And wow. so I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention to detail that that's necessary is, uh, is my advice I would give to grad students or other junior researchers considering um, working on whatever topics, you know, yeah. attention to detail, care, um, make sure that you, you know, triple check everything. Don't take those initial results, no matter how good they, uh, they look and, and run with those. Right. I spend a lot of time now actually cleaning data and making sure that it's, uh, or like rechecking everything before I even run my first regression, just to make sure that there wasn't a mistake that I'm going to realize later that's going to give, you know, uh, the different results after I've been, you know, excited about the initial preliminary findings. Right. So I think right. spend more time preparing um before jumping straight to the analysis and then yeah. trying to draw conclusions yeah which yeah, is obviously yeah. the exciting part of research yeah. but sure. but um you want to make sure that excitement is well founded uh, right strong right. base i i would add to that um i you know endorse everything jeremy said um i do i do think that um one thing that I really emphasize for my students, and I actually do this in, in my graduate public economics class in the context of charitable giving and model selection. And I do that there in the context of, of censored, censored variables. What does it mean for you to be talking about a latent desire to give to charity versus a corner solution? And what's the right specification? What does it mean to run a TOBIT uh, in terms of the, the marginal effects on the extensive margin and the intensive margin, which in charitable giving are often very different choices between what the decision of whether or not to give and then conditional on giving how much to give. And so what I push students on is th think, think about what your specification is actually doing. And that seems so basic. And yet, and yet so often it's, you know, if you, if you push, forget a grad, you push it perfectly. Like, well, why'd you do it this way? Oh, cause you know, it's, it's XT reg, right? XT reg comma yeah. FE. And, and one place where that really opened my eyes with this, and I really struggled with it, I don't know that I have a great answer still, but I think this was where, again, Jeremy kind of driving us to say like, well, let's just, let's create some data and try to figure out what these things are doing, is first differences versus fixed effects. Right. And I could not find a textbook or a clear explanation that said anything other than, well, when you have two periods, first differences and fixed effects are the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you're like, well, okay, fine. What if I have lots of time periods? What if I have, what if I have lots of treatments? Uh, what if the treatments are different sizes? Well, what does it mean now to throw in this fixed effect? And I think 
you know, now versus literally 12 years ago when Jeremy and I started this paper, uh, you know, people, people, a lot of people do have a better grasp on that. And we've, we've, we have made some, some serious advancements in this sort of thing, but I think there's still too much of like, well, let me just run XT reg FE. And that was kind of the problem with this minimum wage literature mm-hmm. is that everyone was running XT reg comma FE and not thinking about what that actually meant and what that meant if the world wasn't this, you know, straw man, you know, econ principles of micro, you know, well, you're just looking for this big discrete drop because that's what theory predicts. Well, mm-hmm. that very simple theory. And so, you know, when we thought through, well, what is... What about looking at long differences? What about looking at at distributed labs? And again, running it through simulations of data and saying, okay, now we're really starting to grasp what a first difference model would pick up Hmm. if the world looks like this. What would a distributed lag model pick up if the world looks like this? And again, it was, you know, I think people smarter than us would have been able to kind of eyeball this and then derive the asymptotic distribution and figure it out. And I think the folks who are, you know, better attuned to that, the, the, the Callaways and Santanas and, and Goodman Bacons of the world, or that's what they're doing. And I'm glad they're doing it. That was not what we were going to do, but we figured it out. You know, we sort of stumbled our way into it. And, and I think really understood what it meant to run a distributed lag model as opposed to a fixed effects model. And why the heck were we getting these crazy huge coefficients on the simulated data? Well, because it's picking up the rest of the difference in in uh, the growth rates, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're getting these kind of crazy numbers that make no sense, and that's how we unpacked it. Boy, that's cool. That's cool. So I mean, um, you're right. I mean, I think that most people, uh, or I, you know, I won't say most, but I, I think it, you're right. There are there are people that when you ask them what their specification is doing, cannot articulate it. Uh, because they don't really see exactly how that model is, you know, churning through the data. And so you found the simulations were your teacher for a lot of that. Is that, is that what you were saying? Definitely. Yeah. So I think uh, another way to, to phrase it is that when it comes to causal inference methodologies, we talk about them as strategies, right? Difference and differences is an identification strategy or re- regression discontinuity is an identification strategy. But ultimately what it is, is it's using variation in the data and you're using a particular type of variation. It's really important to know what variation you're identifying things from. Yeah, 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 man. Boy, that's, that is uh, exciting. That's really cool. Uh, that's something I think young people could really uh, sink their teeth in, which is simulations, you know, demystified all of this work and took took it out of a black box is what it sounds like. And that's how you started to make some discoveries about staggered rollouts and thinking really carefully about this panel fixed effects model, it sounds like, too. I want to end with one thing. Um, I found this, you're both familiar with it. It's uh, this Amon, Robert Amon theory, the theorem, not a theory, <clears throat> of uh, how no people should agree to disagree if they start with the same priors and have common knowledge of each other's beliefs. Uh, they should all form the same beliefs that should all agree. And I was thinking when I was reading your paper, man, uh, nowhere is that not true uh, as in this minimum wage literature. And I was just curious, you know, obviously uh, that theorem completely knows that people disagree with each other. So it's not, you know, a delusion. But why why do we so disagree given we're all labor economists, we've all taken econometrics, we're all, you know, reading up on causal inference and the data is often public. What what exactly is do you think is responsible for such massive chasms between you know camps or different groups of people that just don't read the things the same way why are they agreeing they're sometimes they're not even agreeing to disagree they're just disagreeing but why is that jeremy yeah i'll start so john's probably john's probably going to give the more fiery answer so so scott i think it really comes down to two parts of the statement you said so so the quote you you motivated with is saying if people have kind of similar priors then faced with the same evidence they should adjust their priors to the same conclude in the same way right well people definitely differ in their priors for a variety of reasons and so that's one one explanation but the other um 
uh, factor that I think is important is with a policy like the minimum wage or really any type of kind of complex policy that uh, is used in various different places in different ways, it's like the answer is not always yes, no, up, down, you know, big, small. There are nuance in the world uh, and policy effects in the world. Yeah. And so I think there are probably other factors too, and John will probably speak to those, but I do want to say like, at least from a purely scientific perspective, people can reason we have different priors, which means that the kind of burden of evidence requirement to adjust and, sure. and move to a, a, a different, you know, uh, sign of the conclusion as far as belief about a policy effect is yeah. going to be higher or lower for different people. But then, you know, this is a policy or there are lots of policies that have very nuanced effects and it might have uh, a very different pattern of, uh, of, uh, effect on the world in one place or one circumstance compared to another. Sure. That's great. That's very, people are studying different data from different places and different times and different variation. As I said earlier, right. It ultimately comes down to what's the variation in the data, both as far Mm -hmm. as the treatment that you're identifying, but then also the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jeremy, Jeremy gave the, uh, uh, the diplomatic answer, uh, which, which I think, frankly, I think explains a lot of it. Right. So, so this is not some monocausal thing where, where, you know, I'll say, well, it's, you know, I'll get real fiery and say, well, it's, it's, it's this thing or that thing. And so, um, I think, I think Jeremy's point is well taken. The other thing that I would, uh, that I would add to that is what was that recent paper? You know, this better than I do, Scott. I just, excellent. You've produced a cat. You're off the hook now. Yeah, this you're, out of, you're, out of, you're out of Zoom purgatory. That's, I had to do that for you real quick. All right, keep um, going. So, so this, this recent paper that I thought was just um, a phenomenal exercise and a thankless one where the, the, that, that team had a bunch of people replicate yeah. papers. Nick Hunting, right? Nick Huntington Klein, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I like Nick Huntington Klein's stuff a lot for teaching. He's got those cool simulations of video visualizations that I think, frankly, are great for undergrads. I give them to my undergrads in my economics of education class. So I appreciate that guy's work in, in general. But the um, Jeremy, do you know do you know this thing? Have you seen this one? I want to make sure you're you're on board with us. Yeah, don't ask me to quote the specific results, but I have seen the paper. Yeah, so so it's it's all about. And I'll give the, the the very brief summary for anyone the the, the two people who are watching probably. All of them are related to us. Um, that that is that they went out and they had people replicate from scratch, from like the raw data, and no research team even got the same number of observations in the data set that they were using. Yeah, and I think this again, you know, in people have taken a lot of wax at our paper, and the one thing I mentioned this to Jeremy a couple of years ago, I'm like, you realize like. No one's ever come out and been like, oh, they made a mistake or they were wrong or like they, you know, they forgot this, you know, they screwed up some Excel spreadsheet if we're going to rag on the macro people again. You know, it's it's uh, um, but we made data cleaning choices. Right. And very often it's reasonable to make other data cleaning choices. I think the advantage of our approach was it was very much cards of the day. You could look at it and be like, wait a minute, why did you drop all of this stuff? You know, and um Maybe you could, you know, when everything was commented, so all of our logic was there, still is there. You can run everything that we did with one click. You can reproduce every figure and and uh, a summary statistic that we use in the table, every regression coefficient. Um, but the, I do think that reasonable people can make different choices. And to Jeremy's point, people are coming from different priors. And um, this is sometimes a bit of what Andrew Gellman calls the garden of forking paths, yeah. where we're making choices that any one of these choices are reasonable, but they are all tinged by the fact that we are human and none of us is so, you know, magically uh, uh, disinterested in the sense of being impartial on a topic that yeah, I don't, I think very few people are sitting there being like, oh, if I drop these hundred observations, I'll get the number that I'm looking for. I think that's very uncommon. What I do think is more common is these observations look kind of funky and the results are tighter when I drop them, right? And it's not like I'm looking for this, but it's just, I'm, you know, they're, they're adding noise and, you know, there's, and you make seven or eight or 20 or a hundred of those decisions throughout the course of the paper and you can end up in a completely different place. And I think sure. the Huntington Klein paper shows us that. And, and I'm so glad somebody did that as embarrassing as it is for the profession. Yeah. I will say further, that uh, this is the part where I where I get fiery, um, but the um, this is this is to some extent a bit of a holy war, and so are many things. And 
Um, people have their prep their policy preferences. Um, the minimum wage is interesting because there are actually many people who, you know, maybe lean left in general, but on this one are like, why are we using this policy that is, you know, even if you think it doesn't have big employment effects, there's all these other reasons to think it's sort of bad anti-poverty policy. Right. Um, that said, you know, I mean, I, uh, um, I was talking to someone, I did a, a virtual seminar the other day, it was on a charitable giving thing, but I was talking to uh, one of the, one of my hosts uh, on um, about minimum wage. And this person said, you know, um, my politics are such that I should like the minimum wage. And I was like, whoa, 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 you should like the minimum wage or you should like, you know, good anti-poverty policy. And he's like, yeah, okay, the second thing, but you know, but still, there is this sort of reflective, like, like reflexive, like it's almost a shibboleth of, of like, you know, good right thinking people, or I suppose left thinking people in this case, live on that side. And the number of conversations I've had with people who trust me, so I will not reveal anything about them. They're good friends of mine. They're people who I respect intensely. Uh, I would say almost uniformly, they are much smarter people than I am and much better economists than I am. But every now and then there's a little bit of a slip and it's not necessarily about the minimum wage. It's about some topic or another. And this a person will say something like, oh, I really don't like this paper. I'm like, you don't you don't like the paper. You don't like the findings. Right. And to their credit, they're very often like, you know what? It's it's that I really don't like the findings. I really wish the world didn't work this way. And that's not necessarily that's not uh, what I'm thinking of in the back of my head. Three or four different examples. None of them are minimum wage examples. What this is, we are human. We're human and we come in with human biases. And that's just the nature of the beast. And we that's why, again, I think it's so important to be as transparent as we can be and to when people criticize to not dig our heels in and say, well, you're an, you're an asshole and you must be wrong and you're only attacking me because you take money from this group or that group or you want to get on C-SPAN or like C-SPAN is not very exciting. You want to get on MSNBC or Fox News or What's the what's the Newsmax or One America, whatever it is that you want to get on, right. um, and you look at it and you say, look, like some some of this is reasonable, you know, and some of the attacks we got were 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 couched in aggressive like Sunday morning talk show type rhetoric, debate club type rhetoric, but mm -hmm. at its core were things that we took to heart and said, hey, you know what, you, this person was right about this. Let's take a second look at it. And that's what made the paper, you know, and again, thank you so much for this praise. It's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said about any of my work. Um, but, you know, that that's what made it stronger was yeah. was us being able to separate the the positive stuff or positive in the sense of, of things we could use to improve yeah. from the, you know, debating points part of the part of the rhetoric. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think it's a classic paper for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it was very forward thinking and, you know, it's right at the cusp of this new diff and diff literature. It's very neat to think of the history of thought linking back to it. And but it's also a really important paper on the minimum wage in general and just empirical. Just even I mean, you know, when we think back for a minute, how philosophical the minimum wage is, it's it's this paper being so intensely empirical, it just, you know, reminds reminds us that part of what economists do is really try to dispassionately understand how the world works using data and how the world may be sometimes different than we think it is. And it's really, really a great paper. And I'm glad that you guys, uh, you know, thought enough of the project to work on it. Thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight. Thank you, Scott. Let me add one thing to, to keep to keep the graduate students uh, and the, uh, the the junior faculty from getting too discouraged. Jeremy, how many times did this paper get rejected? It's at least yeah, six. I, I don't want to count them. I don't want to. I mean, I have everything archived, but this paper this paper got rejected everywhere until it didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the other thing, right? The other skill in publishing well is is uh, the the stubborn refusal to give up and continue to try to listen to people that have not necessarily been nice in their reports and try to extract as much meaningful information from it and update, you know, the way we were talking about a minute ago. That's great. All right. It was good to see you guys. Uh, good luck with everything. Thanks. Thanks, Scott.